as we come now before the very Word of God. You can turn in your Bibles if you'd like to read with me to the Gospel according to John in chapter 21. Uh, This is John's Gospel in uh, chapter 21. Before we read, would you please pray with me? Our Lord God, It's because of your great love and mercy that you have made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our trespasses. Lord, we know that you have done this in us already, but would you continue to unfold us by your power? Open our ears, our our eyes, our hearts to enliven them by your Spirit. Help us now to listen, to look, and to love you because of what you've given to us here. Guide us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is John chapter 21. I want to pick up in verse uh, 15 and then read to the end of the chapter. So John chapter 21 will begin in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of God. 
Now, what brings us to this text today? There are a few reasons for this. We know last week was Easter Sunday. And I know Easter in a lot of ways feels like an ending holiday, that there's a holy week before it, all kind of leading, building up to it, to Resurrection Sunday, but it's not an ending holiday. Easter is a beginning holiday. Easter starts what we call in the church Eastertide which is the time between Christ's resurrection and his ascension back to the right hand of the Father. So it's fitting for us today to just carry on with this last resurrection scene that we see in this gospel. So that's one reason. But there's a few other reasons. One, this gives us an important insight about the author of this book, the voice that we're listening to. And this will help serve as a bridge to guide us where we're headed in the coming weeks. And as we focus on a particular part, just one small section of this text today, it's going to help us better navigate our own self-image. To think about our concept of self in a way that is true and honoring to God. So that's our hope. First, let's get the lay of the land. Let me set the stage about what's happening here. Just before the section we've read, Jesus has just revealed himself for the third time to the disciples. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. That was the time when early in the cool of the morning on the banks of the Sea of Galilee, there's this boatload of disciples who have been out fishing all night with no luck, and Jesus calls to them from the banks and eventually says to move their nets to the other side, which gives them this miraculous, massive catch of fish. And and, and they're dragging the, the, the nets to shore where Jesus has already prepared a little campfire and they all sit and they have breakfast together with Jesus. It's a very simple ordinary moment. The type of moment that occupies most of our lives. But now here we pick up where that breakfast has left off. That's how the first verse of it, when they had finished breakfast. So they're polishing off the last of the meal, probably picking the, you know, fish bones out of their teeth and whatever else is going on, whatever the cleanup looks like. And then as that's happening, Jesus pops a question to Peter that seems to come out of left field. Peter, do you love me? And that question from Jesus is the beginning of a back-and-forth conversation between Peter and Jesus about love and care for Jesus' sheep. Now, there have been whole books written about that little conversation between Peter and Jesus. It's very, very significant, but we're not going to go in it today. We'll save that for some other time, I suppose. But at the end of that conversation, it ends with a vaguely ominous comment from Jesus about how Peter is going to be stretched out and carried where he doesn't want to go. And in case that's unclear, the author then tells us this was to show what kind of death that Peter would face to glorify God, that Peter would one day be crucified just as Jesus was. 
Now, Jesus, in this moment, doesn't expand on or explains his, his comment to Peter. Instead, on the tail end of it, he just says, follow me. Peter, follow me. That's not a broad statement. Hey, be a follower of me. Over the whole of your life, till your death, you should follow me. He means, no, right now, I want you to come follow me. That is, that Jesus has stood up and is about to walk away from this campfire breakfast with the circle of the disciples, and, and he says, Peter, come. We're going to take a walk. Peter, I want you to come join me. It seems that Jesus means to follow up their conversation in private. Now, we can only wonder what Jesus has to say to Peter that are only for Peter's ears and not for ours. Because as Jesus steps away and Peter follows him, we don't get most of the rest of the scene. What we do get is that Peter first looks back as he stands to follow Jesus and sees another disciple who's following the both of them. That disciple is not named here, so we're just going to call him Tagalong for now, because that's what he's doing. And, and, and Peter is distracted by this, this Tagalong guy. Hey, Jesus, what about him? What's going to happen to Tagalong? And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, mind your own business. That's a paraphrase, but pretty close to what he says. He says, what does it matter to you if I want him to stay alive until I return? Now, because of that comment from Jesus, we're told that there was a rumor uh, that, that this guy Tagalong was not going to die. And the author just takes a moment to correct the rumor. He says, no, that's not what Jesus said. The author is able to set the record straight about this because this guy, Tagalong, who follows Peter and Jesus at the end, is also the author of the whole gospel. Toward the very end here, he said, Tagalong, we're told, is the disciple who witnessed the things that happened in the book, who wrote it all down, and we know his testimony is true. And that's the final comment that ends the book. Now, as we read from this book, we ultimately know that we are hearing from the voice of God. All scripture is breathed out from God's mouth as the writers are carried along from, by God's spirit. So this is the word of God. It is also, at the same time, the word of human authors. In this case, this guy, Tagalong. Now, who is Tagalong? It's interesting that throughout the book, the author clearly hints at this, but never actually names himself, not once. But even though he never names himself, Christians and scholars who study these sort of things throughout the centuries almost universally agree, because they have real good evidence that we don't need to go into, that the author here is John. We've even given it a title, The Gospel According to John. This is not John the Baptist, that's a different guy. This is John, one of the apostles, one of the twelve who was chosen by Jesus, part of Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John. Now, 
We don't know why exactly that John never names himself within the book. It's not because he's trying to distance himself from Jesus. Not because he's trying to remain anonymous or somehow keep his identity hidden so that he's, he won't be killed like the rest of everybody else. We know that John's gospel here that we've just read from is the last of the four gospels to be written and circulated in the church. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke have already widely become known, and John is frequently named in those three Gospels. So John is already widely well-known and recognized for his relationship to Jesus. It's it's no use trying to hide or cover that up. Uh, We don't really need to speculate about the reasons why John doesn't name himself here in this whole book. It's not clear, and it doesn't really matter that much why he does it. But what we do know is this. While John never gives his own name as the author, there's another particular way in which he refers to himself in the book. And we see it in this text. This will be our focus. Well, let me tell you in just a moment. This will be our focus. He does it five times throughout the book. Once when he's at the Last Supper, once at the foot of the cross, once before he visits the empty tomb, once when he's in the fisherman's boat just before he has breakfast with Jesus, and the last time we hear it is in verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And that is the way that the author refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Let's just ponder that for a moment. Out of all the time that John spent with Jesus, this is his very brief summary, that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. There are lots of things that John could have said that would have also been true. John could have called himself the disciple whom Jesus called, or the disciple whom Jesus taught, or the disciple whom Jesus washed, or the disciple whom Jesus saved from sin and the righteous wrath of God, or the disciple whom Jesus sent. All of that would have been fitting. Instead, he says, this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is not a title that's been expressly given to John from someone else. So you might remember when Jesus first meets Peter, Peter, when when we first meet him, is known by a different name. His given name, his birth name, is Simon. But Jesus says, Simon, from now on you'll be called Cephas, or Peter, which means rock. 
That sort of thing doesn't happen with John. Jesus gives uh, John a different name, more like a nickname that, that he shares with his brother. Jesus calls John at one point uh, Boanerges, which that's a mouthful. Boanerges, which means the sons of thunder. Sounds like a wrestler or something. He calls these two guys the sons of thunder, which maybe means they were powerful forces or maybe they just thought a lot. But that nickname is only mentioned one time in the whole Bible, so it's not something that John was commonly called. He's more commonly called this. Now, with this description, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John is not trying to upgrade his name from sons of thunder. You know, that reminds me in some ways like, uh, you know, the comic strip Calvin and Hobbes used to run in newspapers back when newspapers would run. Uh, but, there, but there's one uh, strip where, where Calvin, precocious little boy, uh, says to his mom, Mom, from now on, I wish to be addressed as Calvin the Bold. A and that's what you should call me now for the rest of my life. And his mom says... How about Calvin the Deranged? You know, you don't get to pick your own name like that. And then I think it's the next day or the uh, day after that, there's a scene where he's wanting to be called Calvin the Bold by his dad. And his dad, you know, has, has him kneel down and, and dubs him as a knight with a new name. Your name is now Mud. Um... This is not something we get to do a, a name ourselves, but, but John here is not giving us a name trying to make other people call him this. He's not attempting to rebrand himself into something newer, shinier, better. This is just a description that he has adopted as a way he has come to see himself. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that description is true. It's true. Undeniably, unshakably, inseparably true. Jesus told his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love, he says. Remain or abide. Abide is not a word that we use very often, but that's exactly what John is doing here in talking about the love of Jesus. He has put that love on like a cloak. He has taken it in like a drink. He's embraced it as part of his very self. This is who I am. I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. Do you see yourself that way? Because you know this is true of you too, if you belong to Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, who's been given to him by the Father, this is who you are one who is specially loved by Jesus. The love of Jesus isn't just a side benefit of your life. 
It's not just a ticket into eternity. The love of Jesus becomes you, abides in you, identifies you. That's why we're told in the scripture that the love of Christ controls us. And as Paul says in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're able to say and should say, I am a new man. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the right way for us to see ourselves. Our self-image ought to be as disciples whom Christ loves. That's a freeing reality. Even more than freeing, it's a protecting reality, a safeguard to us. Because the self-image of being the disciple whom Jesus loves, that helps keep us from other forms of self-destruction. Let me just give a few other forms of self-destruction that this good self-image keeps us from. This self-image keeps us from self-comparison. I know some people in the phrase... Uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, we get hung up on the word the, the disciple whom Jesus loves. From that, some people assume it's embedded with the ideas, you know, he's the only one that Jesus loved, or, or the best one that Jesus loved, or, or the one that Jesus loved most. That's, none of that is in the original language, original phrase. That's not what John means. John knows that he is one among many whom Christ loves. And so this description of himself is not about comparison to anyone else. It's not a ranking, not a hierarchy, not a top and bottom, not a more or less love of Jesus. In, in calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, there are only two people in that phrase, me and Jesus. So it is a silly game to try to figure out where I might fit in some arbitrary Christian lineup and trying to find who is holier than thou. You know, it would benefit us to hear the paraphrase of Jesus, mind your own business. Well, you know, what is that to you? Jesus says, I love you. Out of the infinite pool of my love, I love you. Let that be enough, and let that guard you from self-comparison. It'll also keep you not just from self-comparison, but from self-centeredness. From self-centeredness. We know throughout history, there have been many, many famous people whose names get attached with specific words, descriptors, you know? So some of those descriptors are based on how they looked, so you've heard of Eric the Red or, or Charles the Bald. I think I'd rather be called Eric the Red than Charles the Bald, but uh, nothing wrong with baldness, but you, know, you can be red and bald. I don't know. The others are not just based on how you looked, but on some trait. You know, there's Richard the Lionheart, and, and there's Ivan the Terrible. 
Or there are some whose description is based on something they did, like Vlad the Impaler or, or William the Conqueror. You know, these are interesting bits of history, and, and not all of those things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. You know, if I went down in history as like Nathan the Handsome, you know, I'm not going to complain about that. I, I'm probably more likely to go down as Nathan the Deranged uh, than Nathan the Handsome, but uh, you don't get much choice about how it, it pans out. Uh, whatever the case, we should notice how all of those historical descriptions differ from the sort of identity that John has here. Those things are, are all based on something that's innate within me, something centered upon me, some attribute of myself. I am red or bald. I am lion-hearted or terrible. I impale or I conquer. But John's description comes from something that's external to himself. He is John the Beloved. John the Beloved of Jesus, even. So his description is not about something that he gives. He doesn't call himself the disciple who loved Jesus. It's about something he, he has given the disciple whom Jesus loves. And that will keep him from becoming self-centered. Third, it would also keep him and us from self-indulgence from self-indulgence, that we can do whatever we want without restraint. And I think this is intuitive for a lot of people, but there are some people who think, you know, hey, Jesus loves me. He's already saved me from all my sin. I am secured in my place in the new heavens and new earth for, for, for forever. So, so it doesn't really matter whether I sin or not. I might as well just go ahead with it. Might as well just leave my grumbles, my slanders, my lusts, my theft. Do not be so foolish. Nobody really thinks that's how real love works. You know, if I were to passively watch someone drink themselves to death, that wouldn't be an act of love. Good love holds limits. Not that the love goes away, but that boundaries are set. Which means that for every disciple whom Jesus loves, for every disciple Jesus loves, there is no condemnation for sin, now or ever. The debt sin is already paid in full. There is no condemnation for sin, but there also is no allowance to continue in sin, to indulge in it. Of course, we continue to sin. We know that. But when we do sin, Jesus stirs in us to repent, to mourn our sin, to turn away from it again. Because like a good father to his son, the Lord disciplines the one he loves so that we wouldn't become self-indulgent brats. This self-image guards us from self-indulgence. Fourth and finally, this would guard us from self-loathing. 
this good self-image as the disciple whom Jesus loved guards us from self-loathing. That is, we do not allow ourselves to belittle, disparage, or degrade ourselves. There are some Christians who think that we're supposed to see ourselves as rotten, stinking, dirty, wretched, wormy creatures. That's not right. That is not a good approach. It's true, of course, that sin has so mangled all of humanity that we defy God and spoil the world. Sin is indeed horrendously wicked. God hates it. That's the way we see sin laid out in the scripture, and if we're honest, that's the the way we see its effect in our lives. Sin is far worse even than we realize. But, listen, the Christian should never see himself as a rotten sinner. Because we are forgiven sinners, cleansed sinners, saved sinners in Jesus. In fact, when the scripture identifies, talks about Christians, not just particular Christians, but all Christians, it does not mainly use the word sinner of us. The word of God mainly calls us saints. Saints who are loved by God. Your name is not mud. So don't allow yourself to wallow in self-loathing. You are the disciple whom Christ loves. Lift up your head and wear that like the crown of dignity that it is. That is far better than any cultural trendy notion about how we need to learn to love ourselves. I suppose that's fine, but we need to learn something better. Learn that the Lord loves us. To have this sort of proper self-image that I am one of the disciples whom Christ loved, that truly changes us. We know it changed John. Not just in the writing of his gospel, we will see it in the coming weeks as we begin to dive into and unpack the letter of 1 John. And in that letter, we're going to see the fingerprints of Christ's love all over the place. In 1 John, that's where we're going to hear John remind us again and again and again of the deep, deep love of God, where he says, how great is the love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. Where he says, we love because he first loved us. And where he says, just very simply, God is 
love. We need to know and really come to believe that we are not just the disciples that Jesus tolerated. We are not just the disciples Jesus put up with. We are not the disciples that Jesus was disappointed in, but accepted because that's the best he could do. We are, you are, the disciple that Jesus loves. Pray with me. Lord, help us in this. Help us to see ourselves through your eyes. That we are your beloved. That we are sinners made saints by your grace. You are the one who who made us, who saved us, and who loved us. Help us to abide in your love with all humility and honor that your name would be forever glorified by us. We humbly ask this in the name of Jesus who loved us. Amen.